Welcome to the Trinity Galewood podcast. Here you'll find live messages recorded during our weekly services at Trinity. We are a community that desires to look, live, and love more like Jesus. We're located at 1701 North Narragansett in Chicago and meet every Sunday morning at 1030 a.m. We hope you enjoy this episode of the Trinity Galewood podcast. All right. Well, let me add my word of welcome to you all. Uh, My name is Nick Price. I am uh, the senior pastor of Trinity. And uh, as Eric said, uh, we are a multi-site church whose mission is to help people look, live, and love more like Jesus. That's why we are here. And uh, in a few moments, we're actually going to be diving into uh, that text from 1 Peter chapter 4. Uh, but before we do, I think it's only right that we allow God to uh, prepare our hearts and our minds to receive the message that he has for us. So would you please bow your heads and pray together with me? Uh, let's pray. Lord God, we give you thanks that uh, you have gathered us together in this time and in this place that we might learn from you that we might learn about your ways, that we might learn about what it means to live out this mission together as a family of faith. And so, Lord, we pray that you would indeed give us open hearts and minds to receive the message that you have for us. And Lord, I pray that the words of my lips and the meditation of my heart would be pleasing in your sight. O God, who is indeed our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So one of the conversations that I had pretty early on in my faith uh, that still sticks with me is a a discussion that I had with a fellow classmate when I was in college. You see, I had become a Christian just before going away to school. And it was there uh, during my freshman year that I found myself in uh, one of the open lounges talking with some of my classmates. And as things typically do in college, we hit on all kinds of subjects. And at one point, the conversation turned to the topic of religion. And, uh, and it was during that time that I, that I kind of decided to share that I was a Christian. So I actually shared that I was an evangelical Christian. And what I meant by that was that as a Christian, I follow Jesus. As an evangelical, it means I'm supposed to share good news. Because that's what evangelical means. It just means good news or someone who brings good news. And so I shared that. And one of my friends just kind of like got really silent and got this like weird look over on his face. And so I ended up asking him, I was like, hey, what's up? And he's just like, well, I don't know. I just, I didn't realize that about you. I didn't think that you were that type of person. And I was like, what do you mean? He's just like, well, in my experience, uh, when it comes to evangelical Christians, um, I've never really had a, a, a particularly good encounter. I always felt like they were there to try and shove their faith, you know, down my throat, that they were only friends with me to try to get me to convert and stuff like that. And I don't know, you just seem like such a nice person. I just assumed that that wasn't you. And I had this kind of like collision of feelings the, the moment he said that. On the, on the one hand, I was delighted that, I, that we actually had a good relationship and that he didn't see me as somebody who was trying to be pushy or anything like that. And I was relieved. But on the other hand, I was like, but... Isn't there something wrong with the fact that he didn't even know that I was a Christian up until this point? You see, as a young Christian, I I knew that I was supposed to be different, but I didn't know how. I knew it wasn't supposed to be the kind of like pushy, manipulative faith that he was describing, but I also knew that, that it didn't just mean blending into the background. And the reason I share that story is because the beginning of 1 Peter, this letter that we've been looking at over the past several weeks, Peter starts by addressing the Christians as chosen exiles. He says, you are chosen, God has a purpose for you and a calling for your life, but you're exiles, which means that this place isn't your home. You're actually supposed to be different. The problem is, is that 
for a lot of us, we have no idea what that difference is supposed to look like. We tend to think that it's kind of, we take kind of a, a, a culture warrior posture and that's just what my friend hated and didn't want to have anything to do with. Or we think that it's about grouping up in our own tiny little enclaves and just being separate from the world, but then there's no engagement. And it certainly isn't supposed to be blending in with everybody else. So what does it look like? What's it supposed to look like to be different in a way that points people to Jesus? That's the question that I think many of us wrestle with, which is why I'm really glad that we find ourselves in 1 Peter chapter 4, because it's in 1 Peter chapter 4 that he actually paints a very practical picture of what that difference is all about. So if you've got your Bibles with you, or maybe you have your scripture journals that you brought, if you don't have one of these, by the way, you can run right back to that table right now. We'll not be offended. You can grab one. I want you to follow along with me, because uh, if you've got that scripture journal, we're actually on page 18. But we're looking at 1 Peter chapter 4. And what's really interesting is Peter actually starts, before he paints a picture of how we are supposed to live, he paints a quick picture of how we're not supposed to live. He says, this is what you're not supposed to do. And here's what he says. He says, since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with uh, with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you don't join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you, but they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the good news, the gospel, was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. So the first thing that Peter says is like, there's certain kinds of behaviors that you guys aren't supposed to participate in. And he gives us, you know, kind of whole long list of, of things, you know, sensuality, passions, drunkenness, or just drinking parties, lawless idolatry. Now, this usually isn't a surprise uh, to many people, whether they're Christians or not Christians. They're just like, yeah, Christians don't, aren't supposed to engage in that kind of like party atmosphere, right? But what's important to note here is why Peter says we're not supposed to do that. See, Christians have this habit, especially in kind of like this American Christian subculture of coming up with cute little phrases about the things that we are and aren't supposed to do. Like one of the ones that uh, I heard was, uh, don't drink, smoke, or chew, and don't run with those who do. And we like to like slap that on a bumper sticker and be like, now we got it, yay. And, uh, and the reasons why we're often told to do that is because, well, we're supposed to be better than the world around us, right? But the problem with that mentality is it leads to an attitude of moral superiority, against the people around us. And, and one of the things that Peter says is he says, you guys, my readers, those that I'm addressing, you have no reason to have any ground for moral superiority because he said, you used to be that way. That's what you all used to do. That was your past. Don't do that now. There's no room for arrogance or pride here. So what is the reason that Peter gives for why we're not supposed to do it? The reason that he gives is he says because those ways of living ultimately lead to death, not life. He talks about how these are ways of living in the flesh and then uh, talks about it's a difference between being alive and dead. It's part of the reason why in verse 6 he says this is why the good news was preached even to those who are dead. He's talking figuratively there to the people who are partying and going crazy like this so that they might become truly alive, alive in the Spirit. See, our world tells us 
That to be truly alive is to experience all of the physical uh, pleasures that we could possibly have, all the comforts that we could possibly enjoy. They say, if you really want to be alive, you got to live life to its fullest. And that's why Peter says, and when you guys don't engage with them in that way, they just don't get it. They, they, they'll, they'll write you off as prudes and strange because, you know, it's just about living, man. you got to experience all that life has to offer. But what Peter says, he says, but if you stop and really think about it, if you really pause for just a moment, you realize that's not living at all. That although it looks like you're enjoying the best that life has to offer, deep down you know it doesn't satisfy. Really a good example of this uh, was in a a film that I watched recently, which is uh, Bohemian Rhapsody. It's a story of the rock band Queen and their lead singer, Freddie Mercury. There's this scene where uh, Queen is at like the top of their game. Uh, they, they are just like knocking out of the park one, uh, one hit record after another. And, uh, and Freddie, their lead singer, has absolutely everything that you could possibly imagine. He's got like the world's most lavish house. He's making tons and tons of money. And at one point, he ends up throwing this party at his mansion. And it's like a costume party. And he has all these people there, some of whom he doesn't even know. And, uh, and he's like walking around. And he's literally throwing out gifts and throwing out cash. He even ends up saying to one of the band members, he's like, who needs friends? when you can buy them. And uh, he even shows up to the party like dressed in like a crown, like I'm the king of the world, right? And he's having this blast, this awesome party. But the scene that I'm thinking of is the very next scene where the party's over. And Freddie's alone in his ginormous mansion and there's like cups and glasses and clothes and trash everywhere. And there's these people walking around kind of like cleaning up, you know, and he's, he's just sitting on his couch and he, he just looks empty, and alone. And at one point, he even kind of like reaches out to one of the waiters to kind of try and flirt with him. And, and the guy actually ends up slapping his hand away and getting really insulted. And then, and then Freddie's kind of mask comes down. And he's like, will you just sit and talk with me? And then end up having this conversation. Freddie says, can, can, we, can we meet again? Can we talk again? And he says, you can come find me when you find yourself. Freddie had everything that the world could possibly offer. And at the end of the day, after the party's over, he was left with nothing. Yes, every physical and material comfort that money could buy, but still empty and hollow. Peter says that's the reason we don't participate in that stuff, because we know that it doesn't really bring life. It doesn't bring life. So what does? What's the life that we're supposed to live? I love that Peter Peter gets super practical in this section. He actually says four things. There's four things that are supposed to paint us as different kinds of people. And he does it in a really rapid-fire list, but really important to unpack. Verse 7, he says, The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. That's the first thing. We're supposed to be self-controlled and sober-minded. Why? Well, we live in a world that tells us to constantly react. Uh, In fact, you know, you go on your social media feeds, right? And there's instant things that we should be reacting to. Instant things that are tugging for our attention and pulling on our emotions. We actually live in a culture that is like now built on outrage and the instantaneous outrage that we're all supposed to like buy into, hashtag and like or dislike and unfriend. And and the result is, is that we now have a society where we can't talk to each other anymore. All we know how to do is yell. 
and scream at one another. And one of the things that many sociologists have been lamenting in our society is that it's no longer possible to actually have a nuanced conversation about anything anymore. Now that we live in this society where complex ideas are, are basically cut down to nothing more than a 150 character tweet, we've lost our ability to actually address the deep issues of our day with anything like wisdom and nuance and insight. And what Peter says is he says, but not so with you. You are to be self-controlled and sober-minded. Why? For the sake of your prayers. What if, for a moment, Christians were the people who stepped into some of the hottest, most contentious debates in our society and brought the temperature down a little bit? What if we were able to approach the things that everybody else is screaming about with a kind of wisdom and insight that actually helped us to address our most complex issues in a way that truly is life-giving and doesn't just fall into buckets of stereotypes and slogans and quick fixes that don't actually work. Peter says that's supposed to be you. You're supposed to be a people of prayer who seek God's wisdom rather than just jumping into the fray. You're supposed to be sober-minded and self-controlled. And so the question that I think we have to ask ourselves is this. Are you slow to react and quick to pray? That when the temperature starts to rise and the issues start to get heated, are the Christians the people who first and foremost seek God's wisdom in prayer, looking for his way forward, and then we engage from a place of being sober-minded and self-controlled? That's the first thing that's supposed to be different about Christians. Here's the second thing. He says, above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. He says that we are to love one another in a way that covers over a multitude of sins. What, what does he mean by that? We're supposed to have a kind of love that moves us to a place of forgiveness. And again, this is important for us because we live in a world that thrives on the revenge narrative Think about some of the most popular movies and books of the day. We've had this revenge narrative kick in us for a really long time. Everything from Hamlet to the Count of Monte Cristo to the John Wick trilogy, right? We live in a society that thrives on this. Doesn't matter if it's drama, action, or comedy. What's the story? Somebody did me wrong. I'm going to get even. I'm going to get what is owed to me. People aren't allowed to step on me. We are a society that is quick to retaliate and knows nothing of forgiveness. But Peter says, you guys are supposed to be different. What if you were the kind of people who are quick to forgive and slow to retaliate? What if you had a kind of love that covered over sins and didn't hold them against one another? We, have to be, we really have to be ultimately clear about what forgiveness is. Forgiveness isn't ignoring wrongdoing. By its very definition, it acknowledges that something wrong has been done. That's why you have to forgive. Somebody did something that was wrong and that hurt you. But what it doesn't do is it doesn't hold the wrong against that person. Because that kind of forgiveness is born by a love that seeks to reconcile and restore the relationship. And Peter says, that's what you're supposed to have, a love that covers over a multitude of sins. And so it forces us again to ask a question of ourselves. Are we slow to retaliate and quick to forgive? 
Are we the type of people when the world tells us to get even, instead offer grace and mercy and forgiveness, instead seek reconciliation and restoration within those relationships, especially when it's hard? Peter says that's how you're to be different. Third thing, he just keeps rolling. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Now, I love this one because the word for hospitality that he uses here is actually a compound word. Here's the word in Greek, and then I'll define it. It's philozenos. Philozenos is actually two words which literally mean loving the stranger. That's what the word means. So when he uses hospitality, he translated hospitality, what it literally means in Greek is loving the stranger. And what I love that he uses this word is because we live again in a world that doesn't understand this, right? We live in a world where algorithms show us exactly what we want to hear. Where we get together in communities where people are exactly like us. Where even romantic relationships are now found online and filtered through our own personal list of preferences. We have lost the mystery of embracing the stranger in our world today. But Peter says, not so with you. You're to be a people who love the stranger and welcome them into your life. And I think we struggle with this even as Christians because we're just like, well, what if my life isn't, isn't worth inviting people into? Because we have this idea of hospitality, that hospitality means that we have to have like that perfect HGTV like living room or house where everything is perfectly cleaned up. Or we got to have that life that you would gladly slap on the cover of a magazine where everything's perfect. Then I can invite people in because I got my stuff together, right? But that's not at all what that means. I actually love how Rosaria Butterfield puts it in her uh, book, The Gospel Comes with a House Key. She defines Christian hospitality so beautifully, and I want you to hear what she has to say. She says this, hospitality shares what there is, that's all. It's not entertainment. It's not supposed to be. Radically ordinary hospitality is this, using your Christian home in a daily way that seeks to make strangers neighbors and neighbors family of God. Those who live out radically ordinary hospitality see their homes not as theirs at all, but as God's gifts to use for the furtherance of his kingdom. Hospitality welcomes others in as family. Not because we're like them. Not because they've earned it. Not because we've got our stuff together but simply because we understand that God flips the script on a world by inviting the outsider in, always. It's what Jesus did for us, and he says, you are called to do the same. And here's what's crazy about this. This word, philozenos, is used in only two other places in the New Testament. In 1 Timothy and in Titus. And it's found in lists for elders. So what Peter, by using this, is basically saying, is he's saying, this is actually the mark of spiritual maturity. This is the mark of spiritual maturity. If elders are supposed to be hospitable and you are called to be, this is what it means to truly be spiritually mature. 
Which is why I love when I talk to like Christians who've been in small groups and I say, hey, would you be willing to open up your small group and just invite some people in, maybe your neighbors, your car, oh no, we really like each other, that's going to kind of mess with our dynamic. It's just like, okay, well, would you be willing to serve on the welcome team and welcome those who are willing to come and just like, oh no, I'm not a very sociable person. It's just like, okay, well, would you be willing to like maybe invite somebody over to your house and, you know, get to know them? Well, I don't know. I mean, that, that's a lot of time, energy, and effort. Okay, then what Peter basically says is if that's your answer, you are not as mature as you think. Because this is the mark of spiritual maturity. And so the question we have to ask ourselves is, is your life open or closed to others? Do we open our arms and embrace the stranger, especially, most importantly, those who aren't like us? Fourth and final mark is this one. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Fourth and final mark is we are to be a people who serve. Now, we've been talking about service throughout this series. It's nothing new, so I'm not going to belabor this point any further. But I think the important word here is this, that this kind of service is a gift that we've received that we are meant to then steward. And when he talks about serving, he talks about it in the context of anything that God has supplied you. Which means, yes, it's your time. And yes, it's your talents. And yeah, it's your financial resources. All of them are gifts that you've received that are meant to be stewarded for the sake of blessing someone else. And again, we have a world that tells us we put our own wants and desires first. That what we have is ours, and when we feel like it, we can then dole it out. But remember who Peter was a disciple of. He was a disciple of Jesus who said this, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And Jesus put those things in that order for that reason. He didn't say, hey, when you feel like it, you might get around to giving away your treasures. No, he says, you give your treasures, and that's where your heart is going to go. And I don't know about you, I find that when I give my stuff to something, I am quite literally invested in it, which means that when I give my stuff, my resources away to the kingdom of God, it's then going to shape my life and my heart around that kingdom and around that mission. And Peter is saying here, this is why God has given you what you have, so that you might steward it in a way that blesses others. This is why we have it, is to really give it away. So that others' needs might be met. So that the mission of God might go forward. So that in everything, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. That's what he says in verse 11. So the question we have to ask ourselves is, are you generous with what God has given you? Are you generous with what God has given you? These four things are, what, are, are the things that are meant to mark Christians as a good kind of different a good kind of different. That we are people who approach the world with the wisdom of God born out of self-control, sober-mindedness and prayer. That we are to be a kind of people who love in a way that covers over a multitude of sins. That we are a kind of people who extend hospitality to the stranger and generosity with what God has entrusted to us. And the reason we do these things, one thing that we don't want to miss is because of the world that we know we are traveling toward. I don't know if you caught it, but right at the beginning of verse 7, before he dives into his list, he says, the end of all things is at hand, so you live this way. What that means is he says, we live this way because we know what the world will ultimately be. 
He says, hey, look, don't be surprised if people don't get this, right? That's what verse 12 and the rest talks about. Beloved, don't be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening. He's like, look, we, living this way is going to put you out of step with the world as it is right now. And you can expect people to not get it, to maybe look at you as silly or prudish or bizarre and strange, maybe even foolish and unwise. But Peter says, no, remember what the world is going to be one day. That one day God is going to come in his glory and he's going to remake everything. And instead of a world marked by angry reactionism, it will be a world in which people live according to the wisdom of God. That instead of a world where people lash out in hostility, it will be a world where forgiveness and grace cover over a multitude of sins. Instead of a world of exclusion, it will be a world of open hospitality. Instead of a world of of stinginess, it will be a world of radical generosity. He says, this is the world that Jesus is going to bring. And we live in light of that future. We live today in light of that future because our God is a God who is faithful to bring about exactly what he's promised. That's why verse 19 is probably the most perfect summary of the whole letter up to this point. He says, Therefore let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. That just encapsulates all these four chapters up to this point. He says, We know the God who's given us all things. A God who we can approach in prayer. A God whose love covered over our sins. A God who welcomed us in though we were strangers and who poured out all that he had to make us his own. He says that's the kind of God that we worship. That's who Jesus is. And that's the world that he will bring to its fullness on the day he comes again in glory. And it's in light of that that we live. That's the calling to which we've been called. That's what marks us, yes, as exiles, but a good kind of exile. Chosen exiles. People called according to Jesus' name and called according to his purposes because it's in him that we know ultimately the hope of the future that we're moving toward. And as we live this way, the world begins to get just a little foretaste of how good that kingdom really is. That's who we're called to be. That's what it means to be a good kind of different. That's what it means to live as chosen exiles in our world. So it's with that in mind, I want to close in a word of prayer. Would you pray with me? Lord God, we give you thanks that in your mercy and grace, you made us your own. That though we didn't deserve it, you entered into this world with a love that covered over our sins. That though we were outcasts to your kingdom and your people, you called us chosen. And you generously poured out your life even unto death that we might live. And so, Lord, help us to not be afraid to live, yeah, just a little bit differently. But differently in a way that speaks to the depths of your grace, the wideness of your love, and the height of your glory. It's in your name, Lord Jesus, that we pray. Amen.